interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Listening to your introduction, Dave, made me think about something I was telling a friend this past week about coming up here, and I was thinking about one of my main teachers in my life, a man named John Stott. Maybe he's been your teacher too, but uh, if you ever were with him along the way, maybe you heard him say to you or to your child or your grandchild even perhaps, um, yes, call me Uncle John. Um, I still remember a time when he came to our church in Washington, the Falls Church, and he was lecturing and I had a probably a five or six, seven-year-old little boy who's now his last year at the University of Virginia. Um, and Jonathan had known of Stott and my reverence and affection for Stott for even his little years at that point. And he'd run over to where Stott was across the sanctuary and came back running across to me and said, he wants to talk to you. you know? And so I walked over and Jonathan and I were talking to Uncle John and... Um, he sat down in a chair, much like this one, really, and he put Jonathan's on his, on his lap and began to kind of tickle him, really. And I was kind of surprised and glad, and, and he said to Jonathan, well, please just call me Uncle John. Um, and uh, there was clearly an affectionate you know, thread that ran through this man's life, even as people who were watching his life would say, if Protestants had popes, he would have been our pope uh, for the last decades of his life. Um, uh, I still remember another time walking through our church. He was, it's an Anglican church, so there was kind of a profession, procession of, you know, pastors walking through and people with crosses and things like that. And, and we were at this, sitting in the church, and there was a rail right in front of us, and Stott walked by. And I remember Jonathan being this little boy, even probably littler than that, and him Stott walking by and just ticking him on the leg. And I thought, you know, you never really know that about Stott, you know, unless I told you, probably. But uh, here is the same man who did that, but who also wrote a very good book called Between Two Worlds. <clears throat> As I was thinking about your effort here this weekend, I was thinking it really is that Stott vision of Between Two Worlds. If you don't know the thesis, it's, it's essentially this, that the task, really, of teaching and preaching among the people of God in the world is always to stand between two worlds, the world of the ancient authoritative text of Scripture, but also the world of com- the complex contemporary culture. And you're always trying to do both. And so trying to explain to some friends what I was doing this weekend, I was saying, well, it's this stock vision you see they've captured in Ithaca, New York, of a life between two worlds. They've banded together campus and town, town and gown, people in the church and on the campus to be together once a year in a particular focused way to one more time work at this between two worlds vision. How are we going to somehow have a life in both? How are we going to be attentive to both Scripture and to the world at the same time? I teach a course twice a year for a group of people called the Fellows who come through Washington, D.C. It's for recent graduates of universities across the country, and they come for a year of life in the city. And the course I teach, uh, it's a uh, seminary-level course, uh, but we call it um, learning to read the Word and to read the world at the same time. 
learning to read the word and to read the world at the same time. And whether it's thoughts between two worlds or my title for that course or your Institute for Biblical Studies, you can see that they're really all in the same, the same direction of trying to figure out a way to think theologically about life. And so I would just say, you know, I commend you for that and I'm impressed in that uh, of you and it's a gift to me to be part of your life for a little while. Uh, I said last night several times to those who asked questions, it would be a better thing for me if I really knew who you were. Um, I've met a few of you already by now, but when I'm meeting Gary Fick walking in this morning, I found myself thinking, we have a lot of things to talk about, Gary. You know, I, uh, some of you heard this when I drove in Thursday evening, but I driving in past you know, some horses and cows and veterinary school and some greenhouses, I grew up in Davis, California, uh, which is a town a lot like, in its own different kind of you know, California way, uh, Ithaca, New York. And I felt like I was coming home in some ways. I remember as a little boy walking into the greenhouses week by week with my father, you know, and watering plants and being sure not to put too much water, but enough water. And, and uh, um, if you're an agronomist, Gary, my, my father was a plant pathologist. Uh, so. I love what these kind of towns look like and feel like and what you represent. So towns, uh, we call this morning, Seek the Flourishing of the City. Seek the Flourishing of the City. On Wednesday this week, I drove down to Capitol Hill, uh, which is about 19 miles from our house, and I was giving a lecture to a group of folks on Capitol Hill that morning, but I'd arranged with my friend Mark, who for decades has run 10th Street Auto Repair on Capitol Hill. It's about two blocks from where I was lecturing, so I called Mark on Tuesday. I said, Mark, you know, I just need you to have a general look at the car. It's 148,000 miles on it right now, and I'll just look at it again a few months later, but also I hear something in the, you know, the, on the left side. I'm not quite sure what it is. Can you just look at it? Last time I talked to you, you said, it's getting older, Steve. There are just groans and creaks in it now, so, you know, that's just how it's going to be, you know, but so this one sounds different to me, but you'll know. So I left the car off, went off to my lecture, had a lunch with somebody down elsewhere on the hill, and came back in the afternoon, and Gary said to me, well, you know, I got it all fixed up here, and we did find that noise, and it was uh, something, you know, in the, on the brake and the uh, front left tire, but because we put the brakes in a year ago, it was still under warranty, so no charge to you. Um, I just thought, good for you, Mark. You know, wonderful, really. Thank you for that. I mean, I would never have known. You know, he could have charged me twice, three times as much as he charged me that day, and I would not have known what he was charging me for, basically. You know, I, would have, I trust Mark, so I believe Mark. When he says to me, you need to do this, I say, well, thank you, Mark. Please do that. You know, um, Most mechanics I've been to in the city of Washington, I don't think of that way, really. You know? And I don't go to them anymore, actually, for that reason. Um, one I went to for a while who I thought was more honest with me. I sent my you know, 30-year-old daughter to him for her first car you know, to have him check out something, and they gave her an estimate of $900 for some work, and I thought, that's way too much, really. And I said, well, go over to Mark and see what he would charge you, and it was $300 for the same operations. Um, you know, when somebody lives and works like Mark does, uh, um, 10th Street Auto Repair, and you think, well, it's such a good gift, really, for all the rest of us. Uh, there's a certain knowledge 
that's offered in service to the city. There's no Nicene Creed you know, signs on the door. I don't know what he believes about God and the world, really. I just don't know. Um, but I know he's honest and he's kind, and he gives his gifts away in service to the city. You see, there's a seeking and the flourishing of the city in my friend's Mark and Mark's life, really. Uh, and I don't quite know where it comes from, theologically speaking, but it's a gift to all of us, really. It's really a gift to all of us. Because there are certain days, of course, for all of us where we want nothing more, really, than an honest, skillful mechanic. Right? Later that day, I went to my friend Helen's bagels and baguettes shop uh, on Pennsylvania, Massachusetts Avenue, just about two blocks from Union Station, if you know Washington, D.C., about two blocks from the Hart Building of the Senate. And she's an Ethiopian immigrant. Uh, she's one of five siblings who moved to Washington years ago. In Washington, D.C., there are more Ethiopians than any place else on earth outside of Ethiopia. It's an incredible uh, migration that's taken place of Ethiopian people over the last generation. And there are just scores and scores of thousands of people who, as I look at the women, I always say, there's another daughter of Sheba. Um, And uh, when I ask people like Helen, are you a daughter of Sheba? And she looks at me and she says, yes. You know, and of course, the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. Uh, And these Ethiopian women all seem to be of that same uh, heritage these most beautiful women. But Helen is from Ethiopia, one of five siblings who left her country because of political, economic, social strife. Uh, um, and she started bagels and baguette, baguettes. And uh, so she makes a whole bunch of them every morning and, and serves the city in her work. And uh, She's somebody I've come to know and to love over the years. And so when I'm in there, as I am off and on, uh, month after month, um, we always talk. I always walk behind the counter and give a little kiss to her on the forehead. And I say, good morning, Helen. How are you doing today? How's work today? How's work this week? Oh, the ovens broke yesterday, you know, and I was in a mess, really. And, you know, or the person here behind the counter, you know, didn't come to work yesterday. And I don't know what I'm going to do, really. Or one day last fall, it was, Steve, can I just talk to you? As we walked outside, a little table outside. It was a warmer, uh, early fall day. And her sons, who were five and seven, you know, were you know, being pushed around in a way that seemed unfair to her by the local school, and the principal wasn't really listening to her, and she wondered what I could do to help, and, you know, and uh, on Wednesday, I met somebody there who was from out of town for uh, for lunch, and we were there and had our bagel sandwiches, and then, you know, she said, can I get you something to drink, you know, and Helen makes the very best chai tea latte in all of Washington, D.C., it's just an amazing brew that she puts together. And so I don't get it every day, of course, because I'm not there every day. But whenever I'm there, I'm hoping that it's the right time of day to get a chai tea latte from Helen. And uh, it was that day, and she offered it and came over and talked a little bit more. And then she was getting ready to leave, and I said, do I owe you anything? And she said, oh, of course not, really. I'm not looking for that. I want to pay her. I want her to flourish. I want her to be able to keep in business, really. I want that to happen. But there's been a friendship over time where she not only provides, you know, tasty, interesting, 30 different kind of flavors of bagels, you know, to the city of Washington every morning, really, but her own muffins that she puts together morning by morning and, you know, sandwiches through the lunch hour and, you know, and she's just struggling to keep alive in some ways, to keep a good business going in the world. It isn't, you know, a franchising kind of a work. I mean, she just struggles day by day to do what she's trying to do. 
and trying to work with people who aren't there, who aren't always reliable to work with, and who sometimes steal from the cash register, and um, and yet sometimes just to keep going and going and offering her gifts in service to the city. Uh, I tell you these stories because they're just recent in my life, of course, uh, but they're two friends who do ordinary things in an ordinary way. And we speak about seeking the flourishing of the city. Uh, we're not always talking about the mayors. We're not always talking about the, you know, the world-class scientists. Uh, we're not always talking about the presidents or the prime ministers. Uh, we're talking sometimes, maybe most of the time, in terms of the ordinary way you live your life as I live mine, about those who actually take care of our cars and you know, sell us bagels and baguettes in the morning. And it have some t- somehow, in the midst of the pushes and the strains of life, they still look at you in the eye and they offer you an honest uh, product. Um, they offer you tasty, healthy bagels. And they offer you, you know, it's only going to be $98 today, Steve, because the break was under warranty. I put it in last year for you. Yeah. Go on. Um, and there's no more gift that I really want some days of my life than these kind of gifts given to me. I mentioned last night this idea of common grace for the common good. Common grace for the common good. And again, I don't know you all well enough to know, you know what, um, what you are and who you are, other than I know that you know, there are some churches here in the room and you've got some good people pastoring you whom I've, I've met. Uh, but I don't know whether that language makes sense to you or not. So let's tease it out a little bit this morning, okay? One of the partnerships the Washington Institute has is with the Murdoch Trust. Uh, There are two words that characterize all the things that I do, all the work that we do in the Washington Institute. One is the word coherence. The other is the word collegiality. It's always the coherence of faith to vocation to culture. It's always pressing this coherence of faith to vocation to culture. It's always pressing the thesis that faith shapes vocation, which shapes culture. It's always pressing this thesis that what we believe about life shapes how we live life. That has consequence for life, for blessing or for curse. And so whether we are animists, whether we are Maoists, whether we are Hindus, whether we are evolution materialists, whether we're Christian people, actually, these deepest convictions we have about the way the world is shape how we live in the world. And that has consequence for the world. So it's always that coherence, but that work's always done collegially. So we've chosen to work in partnership relationships, in collegial relationships with other institutions and organizations that have kindred spirits to ours. One of those is the Murdoch Trust in Vancouver, Washington. Um, Jack Murdoch was one of the inventors of the oscilloscope in the 1950s. Anybody in that kind of a world here in this room? Okay. Well, he was the founder of Tektronics. Maybe you know that company. And he was a tinkerer. Uh, his father said, oh, they would pay for you to, after World War II to go to college or to set you up in a shop. He chose the shop and loved to work with wires and tubes and knobs and, you know, over time, messing around, messing around. The oscilloscope began to be born. And he joined up with a friend, and they created a way to actually make a production line, and these began to be produced and sold. And he sold millions of them and made millions of dollars over the next 25 or so years. He loved to fly airplanes and um, loved them so much. He was flying one day in the mid-1970s, and he crashed his plane in the Columbia River. Uh, Vancouver is just across the river from Portland, Oregon, if you can kind of picture that here. 
So the Columbia River was right through these two cities, and he crashed the plane, and he died. His will, uh, being unmarried with no children, went to three friends saying, do something good with my money, please. He had about $90 million in his account um, in 1975. And his three friends created the Murdoch Trust. And uh, over the course of the last 35, 40 years almost now, they've given away almost $800 million, I suppose, uh, mostly to the Pacific Northwest, to five states, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington, and, and Alaska. Almost all their giving goes to those five states. If you were to look at the website, you'd find even the language somehow on that website of common good, I think it is there. But I've been arguing to them for the last several years that, in fact, they are a common grace for the Common Good Foundation. So they've even chosen that language now to be on the website to describe something of what they're trying to be about uh, for the common good of, of the Pacific Northwest. Um, in an unusual way, they've made this decision that they're neither going to be parochially secular nor parochially Christian. Now, I don't know what your exposure is to money or to foundations or things like that uh, uh, at all, really. But most foundations, as I watch them, choose to either be one or the other. You either have to believe in Jesus to get money from the foundation, or you can't believe in Jesus to get money from the foundation. Um, uh, it mostly seems to work that way, at least. Uh, but the Murdoch Trust has chosen differently. And so with generosity and vision, they fund the Oregon Shakespeare Theater, they fund fisheries projects in Montana. They fund clean water projects in Idaho. They build chemistry labs for the University of Washington. Uh, generously and with vision, they give behind these kind of projects by the hundreds and hundreds every year, really. But they also support with equal generosity and vision the Quaker College George Fox University, uh, the Presbyterian School Whitworth University, the Catholic School Gonzaga University, Seattle Pacific University, Wesleyan School, seminaries, colleges, Young Life, University, the Navigators, Ministry to Homeless Women in Portland, Ministry to Trafficked Women in Seattle. I mean, by the, again, the scores and scores and scores, they've gotten behind these diverse kind of efforts, really, throughout the Northwest. And they believe, that, in fact, it's not a matter of secular funding and sacred funding, or funding that sort of more pleases God and that less pleases God, but we'll just do it because you know, it needs to be done. But actually, they believe, in fact, that their mission is to work for the common good of the Pacific Northwest. And I'm actually proud to be a part of their work. I'm glad to be a part of their work. I believe in their work, really. I stand behind their work. I take pleasure in their work. My wife, who knows me well, says, when you speak about the Murdoch Trust, Steve, you smile. And I know that I must do that. I'm not maybe consciously so, but I, I do because I'm so pleased with what they're trying to do. The question maybe for all of us would be, well, if somehow in the strange mercies of God, which is not my life, maybe it isn't yours either, you had $90 million, what would you do with it? How would it be given away? How would you decide, in fact, what's going to get the benefit of these, this you know, resource that is yours? What kind of categories would you have in your mind? to think through, well, okay, this needs to be done. You know, I need to be generous. It's a good thing to be generous. It's, I want to be generous. Well, how would you be generous? How would you decide, really? Would you have the theological grist, the theological richness, the theological depth and breadth to actually make a choice to see, in fact, that both Young Life and the Oregon Shakespeare Theater need funding in order for human beings to flourish in this part of the world? Would it be like that? Would you see it like that? 
Would clean water projects in Idaho have the same meaning for you as a Lutheran Bible camp in Idaho? You see, I don't think, as I talk to a lot of people who love God in the world, who wanting to be faithful to God in the world, in fact, we actually can find our way into that kind of vision because we do really have a harder time believing that taking care of fish in Montana is important, as important as taking care of kids and young life in Portland. Now, God is the one who is sovereign and sees universe, and he makes his own discernments and judgments. And I'm not saying I know all the heart of God about this. But I do think that it's, it's worth thinking through people. You know, uh, of what is it that makes them decide the way they decide, and how it is they work at the, what they work. Because of the room that is here and who's in the room, and again, I don't know most of you at all, but even thinking through those of you who have lives in the university world here, who are dependent on various kinds of foundations and entities to fund the work you do. I'm guessing, really, I'm guessing that if you heard me last night, you know, quoting G.K. Chesterton, um, that he, he prays, offers you know, grace before he goes to the dance and the opera and the pantomime and, and, uh, and grace before he dips his pen in the ink. Um, and you see that kind of sacramental vision of all of life, that everything matters to God, really, that everything matters to God, is really the heart of the Murdoch Trust vision. Um, and it's not somehow that God cares more about this and less about this. I don't know, again, how God works it all out. But I do have a theology that, for me, is dependent upon this idea of common grace for the common good. Let me say a little bit more about the distinction between saving grace and common grace. There's a theological tradition out of which I think, out of which I live my life, which makes this distinction between, theolo- between saving grace and common grace. You see, unless we're going to be some kind of dualist people or compartmentalized people or people with a split down our souls, which says some things are really of God and other things are not really of God. Some things God cares about, other things he doesn't quite care about as much. Really. Because of what I do in the work of vocation with people around the country, I often find people in the business world who say to me things like, my assumption, Steve, after the years is that the church thinks that what I do isn't really quite as important. What's important to the church is I make money to support the work of the church. As one of my friends puts it, who has patents that are written into all of our cell phones, he says, you know, I assume after a life in the church and parachurch that when I walk into the room, the the thought is, glad you walked in because you brought your checkbook with you, didn't you? Nobody cares how I made my money, what I did in making money, whether it's in fact good or not good in the world. It really is simply you made money, so thanks, thank, you, thank you for coming today. Um, he says, you think that what I do matters, don't you? And I say, I do, really. Or another friend of mine, you know, who was a CEO of a corporation in another part of the country, said to me a few years ago, he said, I get a call from a mother or father every month of my life, Steve. They always want me to have lunch with their son or daughter who just finished at the University of such and such. And he says, I always try to say yes to these requests, and we go off for lunch, and I'm talking to this 22-year-old young man or woman who's going off to Chicago to work in the world after their degree, and I'm asking, what have you been studying, and what do you want to do, and what are your hopes for the future? And he says, inevitably, he says, strangely, most of these young people say to me something like, well, I want a meaningful life, you see. That's why I'm looking for work in the nonprofit sector. And he said to me, Steve, couldn't we recast this paradigm? 
you and me. Couldn't we work at this together? Well, what we'll do will be frail and faulty, of course, but we are working at that in our own different ways now. Um, he says it just seems ironic. He's not has to have a mean bone in his body that I've ever seen, actually. So he's not angry about it, but he says, here I am, the owner of a global corporation. And what's being said to me, sorry, you have to make money. <laughs> no. um, at least you get to give it away, um, which is what I'm interested in, because I'm working for the non- in the nonprofit sector. Uh, another young friend of mine who's 30 years old, who is entrepreneurial by heart after his university degree, went to Wall Street for a few years and you know, labored away in a cubicle, country numbers for some Wall Street firm, and moved to Washington after a while. I got to know him there. And he's now back in his hometown of Austin, Texas. And he started a, a new business that uh, is called Treehouse. He calls it a, uh, a Whole Foods version of Home Depot. Um, and if you Googled around when you got home there, you could see Treehouse and the articles written about it in the last few months. But uh, it's a visionary effort, and God alone knows if it's going to succeed, but he's worked really, really, really hard at this, traveling the country, raising the capital for this, and trying and trying and working and working and persuading and persuading and finally got enough millions to people to invest in this idea, and uh, he's worked really hard at it. But a couple of years ago, he said to me, Steve, this is living in Washington again, and he said, well, you know, there's an IJM curse in Washington, D.C., now, he's my friend, and he knows that my family and Gary Haugen's family have been friends for years and years. The International Justice Mission is IJM, this work in human trafficking and human rights around the world, a very visionary and good and important work in the world, actually. My older kids were the first babysitters for the Haugen kids, so we've been part of this for a long time. Um, he said, there's an IJM curse, you know. I said, what do you mean? He said, well... Everybody who's 25 years old wants to work for IJM. They may have a law degree or an MBA, but after a year or two or three, they think, if I could just rescue girls from brothels in Bangkok, boy, that'd be a meaningful life, wouldn't it? Now, that's good work, and it's work that matters. But this young man's question to me was, couldn't you and I rethink this? Couldn't we work to try to change the paradigm? Couldn't we somehow figure out, is there moral meaning in the marketplace? For lots and lots of reasons, and the stories could go on and on, you see, in various ways, we have a split down our consciousness. We have a split down our theology, a split in the middle of our, of our theological vision about what matters and doesn't matter in the world. And for a lot of people, we have things that matter more and things that matter less, and assume that God, in fact, is on the side of certain things we think matter more and not. Um, and I'm simply saying to you, you know, that isn't an adequate theological vision. One of the reasons I think this is because of my own wrestling with the text uh, in the Old Testament of Jeremiah and Daniel. About three or four years ago, or five years ago, I forget now, but I was asked to speak at a weekend conference for Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City uh, on vocation. And so as I was thinking through that in the summertime, one day I decided I would just take my Bible out and do something I'd never done before in my whole life. And I would read the book of Daniel from beginning to end. And so I got the Bible, it was out on my deck in August, and I had to, you know, it was not such a hot day, and I had a notebook beside me, and I just began to read and to read and to write and to write and to ask, so what's this story of a man's vocation all about? Because you see, Daniel is that story, isn't it, in a, sort of an unusual way in the Bible. 
the story of a man's vocation. It's a story of a vocation lived out before God. Now, my life had been a life raised by family who believed in God, who taught me to love God and to love the scriptures. And, um, but when I began to be old enough to understand books like Daniel, I began to hear diverse interpretations of Daniel, and I was pretty sure that most of them weren't right. They couldn't be right. Um, and I became an agnostic about mo- much of the book of Daniel, thinking, well, I believe in the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures, but I'm sure when you begin to get into goats with five horns that nobody really knows. How could they, actually? Um, So I became more agnostic, frankly, about the second half of Daniel and lived with it as if, well, I know it matters somehow, somewhere, but I don't have any idea what this is about, and probably you don't either. Um, But that day I read through the book from beginning to end. Clearly the first half are stories which make more sense to us, even with their mysterious dreams and interpretations. Um, We make sense of Daniel in a lion's den, after all. But when you begin to get into these dreams that were Daniel's own, it's harder to understand. But let's just think a little bit about this story, okay? Jeremiah is the prophet of God, the unwilling prophet of God. He does not want to be the prophet of God. And if you know the story, those first verses and those first chapters of him actually pushing back against the call of God upon his life. I don't really want to be this. Please, I don't want this in my life. Well, the story walks its way through his own movement into this vocation of God's. And and then we find this remarkable place in chapter 29 where Jeremiah, writing as he is, speaking as he is into the exiles of Babylon, to keep his history here, the whole book of Jeremiah is written for the exiles in Babylon. Who were the exiles in Babylon? We call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 2. And, of course, the people of God, you know, stolen away from their own land, taken by a ruling power and moved off to this Babylonian world and settled in a place they didn't want to be. And they sing their songs, how long, how long, O Lord, to sing this song by the rivers of Babylon. They don't really want to be there, but yet they are there. They are a captive people. And what's Jeremiah doing? He's speaking to this captive people in Babylon. I found myself thinking a lot about the place Babylon as I've been living in this book for several years now, more specifically, and thinking it would have been easier to imagine, oh, how about Colorado Springs? Um, maybe even Wheaton, Illinois, or, you know, you could choose a nice place to live maybe, or someplace where it isn't maybe as hard as the most iconically pagan city in the history of the world, Babylon. Is there a place we think about in our consciousness which is just more pagan than Babylon? I don't, can't think what it is, really. So here it is, Jeremiah writing to people living in Babylon, and he says these strange words in Jeremiah 29. Seek the flourishing of the city. I want you to plant trees, and I want you to build houses, and I want you to get married, and I want you to have children. I want you to pray for the flourishing of Babylon, because when Babylon flourishes, you will flourish. After we move through these more narrative accounts in Daniel's life of you know, banquets with Belshazzar and the choice to eat vegetables and drink water and the Daniel's den you know, sentencing that was his. And, and then you have the next half of the book, really, which are these stories of dreams given particularly to Daniel with Daniel's name on them. 
I have dreams most nights. They're off, mostly incoherent, you know, and it's hard to talk about them to anybody else, even my wife. I think I could say five words, but you wouldn't understand, really. And you know, but here are these mysterious dreams that are Daniel's, you know, and and my best reading of it is he did understand, and yet he didn't understand. So you have these words repeated throughout these next six or seven or eight chapters of this book, which are, and Daniel heard the dream and he could not sleep. He heard the dream and he was perplexed. He heard the dream and his face became flushed. You see, the dreams with his own name on them, given to him in a sense to make sure that he knew his place in history. It wasn't as if somehow all the veils of heaven were broken open and he could see things finally with clarity. Night by night, dream by dream, year by year, in fact, dreams with his own name on them, they perplexed him. In fact, the very last word about Daniel in the whole book of Daniel was that he did not understand. I don't know how you make sense of that, people. I know for me, at this point in my life, as old as I am in this, in this life, those actually seem to me better words than not. In fact, I live with them more easily than I might have at age 20. In fact, they are more of a comfort to me now than they once might have been in my life. That in fact, this man given over to God, loving God, wanting to serve God, listening to God, attentive to God, a vocation from God, and yet sometimes hearing God working away at the work of God in the world, he didn't quite understand, really. It didn't all make sense to him. That's the life I have, frankly. You don't know me very well, but that really is the world that I live in. That's how it is for me day after day after day. Along the way in this story of Daniel's life, it actually has him opening up the scroll, as it says here, to the chapter we call chapter 29. So we know that Daniel was hearing these words of the prophet Jeremiah. Hearing the words, seek the flourishing of the city, pray for its flourishing. And we think about what Daniel was doing with his life. There's no indication other than he was the chief political counselor for three different tyrants. We call them Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. But they were tyrants, they were dictators, they were mercurial leaders of their people. Two were what we would call more Iraqi in the present day you know, political geography. One was more Iranian because the Iranian army overtook the Iraqi people at a certain point. And so even when the change took place politically, Daniel was held on as the chief political counselor, which says a lot about Daniel, doesn't it? If you think about regime changes in a university or regime changes in the government, get the governor's office or the president's office or whatever you might imagine, when somebody comes in to give new leadership, mostly they don't do things like that. They want their own people there. So to have somebody say, you know, we want you to stay here and to continue to give advice to me, it says a lot about what Daniel was doing and who he was. And my own best reading is if he was the chief political counselor, what was he doing but offering counsel about agriculture, about military strength, about water resources, about all the stuff of life for everybody. What else would he have been doing anyway? That was his work, to seek the flourishing of the city, to understand that, in fact, when the city flourished, that he would flourish. In fact, when this iconically pagan city, Babylon, flourished, strange, weird, amazing, as I even ponder that, that somehow that was his calling, to seek the flourishing of a pagan place. I live in a place like that. Maybe you do, too.
to think that, in fact, my life and work is to be fixed upon seeking the flourishing of Washington, D.C.? Now, I've come to believe, in fact, that Lord Bismarck was right a long time ago, speaking about German politics in another century. If you want to respect sausage or law, then don't watch either being made. It's hard to come to the city of Washington full of its monumental you know, glories and get to know the city, in fact, and to still want to be there because, you see, it's just a messy place. It's an awful place in so many ways behind all the monumental glory because there's just so much sausage that's being made all day long. And when you begin to see what it is, do you really want to be part of it? A lot of folks don't. A lot of folks swim across the Potomac figuratively and get bitten by the Potomac fever as they do. And come into the city wanting to put their shoulder to history, to change things forever for for all of us. And after a year or two or five or six, begin to think, you know, this is a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. It's a lot more messy than I imagined it being. I think I better go back to Des Moines. Um, Not that Des Moines is not a good place to be from or to go to. I've got a series of friends I wanted to tell you a little bit about who I think live their own lives with vocations for the common good. One of of my good friends is a man named George, who's the president of Washington First Bank. It's the only bank that's really chartered in the city of Washington. But uh, George has been in banking his whole life, really. But he's the kind of banker, you know, who after earning his spurs along the way of being a loan officer for this and in charge of this, finally he gets drawn into a new bank that's being created and you know, he becomes the president of it. And when I asked him some years ago, well, what do you do, George? I mean, what, what is it that marks your banking life? And he said, well, he said, you know, among other things, he said, you know, um, people come in to see me sometimes and they've been to other banks in Washington who really won't listen to them. He says, I always try to listen to people just to hear what they want, what they need in the city of Washington. He said, sometimes there's stories like, you know, there's a, a less than attractive neighborhood. There's a more abandoned part of the city. There's a city or a block or a neighborhood which has been neglected by the banking and financial interests of the city. But somebody comes in and they have a real vision for actually trying to bring renewal to a block or to a neighborhood. And he says, I try to listen very carefully to what they want for, to happen there. And he says, I try to make it happen for them. He says, you know, it matters to me to have the bank regulators say to my trustees, my directors every year, you get the top marks in the industry. So he's a really good banker that way. He has, he's astute with money. He's very good with money that way. It's always the top ranking he works hard to get year after year. So he's not giving the banks money away. But he's trying to find a way to actually allow the money of the bank to work for the city of Washington. He said to me one day, you know, Last, he said last week, Steve, you know, the president of our board, of our chairman of our board, said to me, "Why is it there are no legal fees in the annual report here? Uh, there are always legal fees, George. What happened?" He said, "Well, I talked to people instead." And uh, my friend George is no fool at all. I, he said, "Well, I asked, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, I think it's really a, a, a lose-lose operation if we have to sue somebody for their money." We have to go to court over the money. She says, sometimes I don't sleep at night very well. Sometimes I get up way early in the morning. And sometimes I make way too many telephone calls. And I knock on too many doors. But he says, even as the president of the bank, I want to make sure that you actually fulfill the promise that you've made to me. Because it isn't good for you. 
nor is it good for us, actually, if you default on the loan. So as I work really hard with people to try to make sure that we can rethink, recalculate, renegotiate the money to make sure that you keep alive financially and legally, and that we do too as a bank. I talk to people instead. I've watched him do his work with people who are on the highest ends of Washington life, you know, with things that you think, well, why do they need anybody to fund their work because they have their own money to do it? But I've also watched him work with people who have almost no access to funding in Washington, thinking, George, what a good life you have, actually. You, know, you have sense, a sense of vocation for the common good, don't you? Another friend of mine makes hamburgers. He makes a lot of hamburgers, actually. Um, it's called Elevation Burger, is his company. And about six years ago, he started a store in Washington, and his tagline was, Ingredients matter. Ingredients matter. And I got to know George early on in this business's life, and we began to talk about many, many things. And I finally said to George, you know, you're making eschatological hamburgers, Hans. And he smiled, maybe you do too. Eschatological hamburgers. I say to Hans, you know, when you make hamburgers that are tasty and healthy at the same time, it's a signpost of the kingdom, isn't it? Because, you know, someday the promise is at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the very first thing we do in the new heavens and the new earth will be have dinner together. And you can bet that everything we eat will be tasty and healthy at the very same time. There will be no trade-off. I had a donut in the morning, better have an apple for lunch. You know? I mean, it'll all be tasty, it'll all be healthy, and there'll be no trade-offs. So for my friend Hans to require that his cows be healthy cows. So... Part of the deal for Elevation Burger is these are organically produced, naturally fed cows. It isn't a fancy pants place to eat lunch. It's a really a popular place for mothers with their little kids to come, actually, which is an interesting demographic to be serving in the city. And as we watch that and listen to that and make sense of it, I mean, clearly people, mothers with cares for the health of their kids are being drawn to this place with the promise of better than not food, of healthier than not food. It isn't a health food store. You know. uh, it isn't a kind of a weird place at all. It isn't a strange place. I mean, it's a really interesting place, and nice signs. But as I tease him sometimes, so when are you going to learn to make a Christian hamburger, Hans? Because you see, as I listen to some people, strangely, they actually do want Christians in business to do Christian things, to make Christian products. They really are happy to have an elevation burger, but they like to be able to look and find you know, a holy hamburger too. Um, we have in our work worked with various seminaries and bringing them into Washington on these questions of faith, devocation to culture. Some of the seminaries represented in this very room have come to be with us for a week in Washington. People with good theological training who've come to visit Hans in his store and talk to Hans about what he's doing in business. And they've asked, so what's Christian about this, Hans? Nothing on your store sign says anything about your faith. You're, you're kidding yourself here, actually. You're, are you afraid of your faith? Are you afraid of Jesus? Are you ashamed of God? Why isn't there something on the signs of your store which indicate, in fact, that John 3.16 really is the answer to the, all the questions of this world? Are you ashamed of Jesus, Hans? I'm not kidding you. That is the question from serious theological students in American evangelical seminaries coming into my friend Hans' store. They want somehow for him to do something other than offer to the city of Washington healthy, tasty hamburgers. His hamburgers are that way, but his french fries are also fried in olive oil. 
They're not weird. They actually taste good. You wouldn't really know the difference probably at all. But you know, olive oil, given how we're made as human beings, is easier for us to digest. It just works inside better. Another company that started in Washington is called Five Guys. Maybe there's a Five Guys in Ithaca. Is there? I don't know. Well, you know, I went a few years ago, uh, and about three years ago, my wife and I were at the beach one day and were bicycling around and saw Five Guys and thought, yeah, let's share a Five Guys hamburger. Went in, we actually got one hamburger for both of us and, you know, bicycled away afterwards and didn't eat anything for the rest of the day because we couldn't, because we felt sick for the rest of the day. Um, and you know why? Because we're not really meant to eat meat, meat like that. Our bodies really aren't oriented to do, to do things like that. And so because I'm not longer 18 and can eat a pizza at midnight and go to bed a half hour later, um, I actually have to eat things that agree with me, that are actually good for me. I find that going into Hans's Elevation Burger at noon, having a meeting with somebody there, a conversation for a while, going back to work for the rest of the day, I don't think about it. I'm not eating it for the rest of, of the hours of the day. And I think, well, good for you, Hans, you see. It is a gift to me, actually. It's a gift to me. And it's a gift to the city. He's now sold 175 of these franchises around the world. More in the Middle East, interestingly, in Kuwait and UAE and uh, you know, all over America. and It's a hard thing, actually, as I listen to him and watch him. He's the chairman of our board in the Washington Institute. Um, but as I listen to him, it's a hard thing to grow a company, to keep on top of it and figure out how you're going to train people to offer you know, tasty, healthy hamburgers in cities across the country and around the world. Um, but he's committed to that. Another good friend of mine is Kwan. Kwan is the most global citizen that I know. He has North and South Korean parentage. He grew up in Ecuador, in Argentina, and Brazil. Came to L.A. for his first study in America, then to Boston later on. He now works at the World Bank and really works around the world and has lived all over the world in his World Bank position. But he has as a passion of his life to give himself to thinking through how development ought to be done. How development ought to be done. So working with a country called, like Guatemala for the last few years, rather than having such a huge elephant footprint as the World Bank so often does, uh, saying, we want to think through the questions of how this might better be done with a country like Guatemala. Um, he actually sends out prayer letters on these missions because the World Bank actually calls his work missions. And so, you know, kind of a turnabout on this. I mean, he's a World Bank development economist, but he sends prayer letters out for his missions. And he says very easily and plainly, when I do that and depend upon God through his people to support my work, he says, I do see the blessing of God upon my work in a strange, unusual way. Kwan is committed, really, to this vocation for the common good of cities and countries all over the world. One of my good friends, a former student of mine, now one of my dear colleagues, is Kate. and uh, She works with me part of the time, week by week, but she also is a mother to her children part of the time, each week by week. If you were just to go online and Google Kate Harris and mothering, you'd find a couple of very good essays uh, by her on this. I was at Fuller Theological Seminary a few weeks ago talking about some of these very things there, and a professor walked up to me and he said, Kate Harris works with you, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, her essay on the vocation of motherhood is really the most stimulating essay we give out in the whole of my curriculum every year. 
People just talk and talk and talk about it. Um, I've heard from a, a website called the Q Gathering, which uh, is in New York City these days, and uh, they published it, published it last fall on their website, and about 24 hours later, the editor said to me, it's the most hit piece we've had, actually. She's just trying to think through what it means to be a mother, and is there a vocation in mothering? How do I understand the attentiveness I'm called to in the work of my attending to my children day by day, week by week, as a vocation from God, even as I care about other things in my life too? How do I put that together? It isn't as if she's done it all perfectly and well. She's a pretty young person, actually. But she's conscientious and she's thoughtful, and her instincts are very, very good. And I love that about Kate, actually. And I could go on and on and on with stories of my friends, uh, people who I live with, who I work with, and tell you stories of people who have a sense of seeking the flourishing of the city with vocations for the common good. Given like Johann Sebastian Bach, SDG, you know, night by night, work by work, to the glory of God alone. And you know, like, like Handel, he put SDG on both the St. Matthew's Passion and on the concert for the concerto for the viola, like Handel did for both the Messiah and his water music. It was SDG for both, to the glory of God alone. And you see, we have to have a theological vision that in fact sees all of life as sacramental in that way. All of life is mattering to God. What are the implications for us? Well, I think one would be simply this. We need to make sure that our theology is right to make sure that our theology is right. We're doing theological reflection this weekend. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to make sure our theology is right here, that we can somehow you know, account for the work of a, an agronomist at Cornell University as sola deo gloria, you know, writing about, thinking about, giving his life to the questions of how farming works and doesn't work. In fact, the way farming ought to work. We'll look more at this question of ought in the next lecture. Somehow that's as important as the work of Chesterton House, you know, ministering to the intellectual questions, heart and mind, as they are twined together of the students and faculty of Cornell University. That somehow it isn't only that, you know, your work as a professor at Cornell supports his work as a, the director of Chesterton House. Uh, that really is the value of your work. But that somehow there is actually value to the work you do to the glory of God, because in fact, you too, all three of, all two of you, seek the flourishing of the city. It is a work of common grace for the common good. The credo for the Washington Institute is this. Vocation is integral, not incidental, to the missio dei. Hear it again. Vocation is integral, not incidental, to the missio dei, the mission of God, to the work of God in the world. Mostly what I find talking in churches and seminaries across America and beyond this, really, is the church teaches the reverse of that and has for a long time. That what we do with our lives day by day is on the side of what God's doing. It's incidental, really. As my friend who has the patents for our cell phones and everything says, it isn't what I do that matters to the church. It's that I make money for the church that matters. And in thousands of ways, I hear that story week after week in my life, really. And I always groan over it. I always sigh over it. The second would be this. Another implication would be this. To be families and communities that pray this way. To be families and communities that live this way. 
In our congregation in, in Washington, some of us made an argument to our pastors years ago now, saying, let's keep praying. We must keep praying for church planners in Kazakhstan and Kenya. We need to keep praying for Young Life staff in Arlington. But can't we pray also for attorneys on K Street? And can't we pray for kindergarten teachers here in Falls Church too? That they too, as they gather together week by week, might see their vocations as integral to the Missio Dei. And not only be there because, in fact, one more week, their part in the story is to take out their wallet and support with tithes and offerings what really does matter to God. Because, of course, that's what we pray for. We pray for the things that really matter, don't we? Things we think really are important to God and to us. And so I keep making the argument, talking to seminaries and churches wherever I go, well, can't we rethink our congregational prayers? I mean, why couldn't we begin to pray for people who are working their lives out day by day, seeking the flourishing of the cities, small and large, you know, all over the face of the earth? Because, in fact, this is the work of God in the world. This is the Missio Dei in history. Couldn't we do that, too? As one of my friends puts it, who was a, grew up in New York and you know, uh, lived in New York much of his life, retired as the CEO of IT&T some years ago, but he said to me a year, about a year ago one day, just talking about this very conversation, he said, Steve, you know, I don't know if I've ever, ever heard a sermon where I thought, that in fact, the pastor thought about somebody like me. Now, if you as pastors in this room would know this man, you would know that he's not only a gifted person, but he's a generous person, and he's a loyal person. He's not a fundamentally critical person. So he wasn't screaming out at me or cursing pastors in this. He would be a loyal, supportive member of your church if he was part of your church. That's the kind of personality that he has, the sort of commitment that he has, really. But it was more of a lament, I think, in a little conversation with me saying, no. I'm not sure I ever had the sense that in preparing the sermon, the pastor thought about somebody like me, with the kind of complexity that I have in my life, the kind of challenges that are mine on Monday morning. He wasn't looking for pastoral counsel from Exodus about whether this trade ought to be made with between this country and this country on Wednesday this week, really. It wasn't some kind of new you know, exegesis of, you know, of the Gospel of John as to somehow this speaks into some detail of your life this week. I think it was more of a sense of wanting this between-two-worlds reality for him. That somehow the pastor wrestled with the text, this ancient authoritative text of Scripture, that there was a live, dynamic wrestling with what then will this mean for the complex, contemporary world of the people whom I pastor week by week. That's what I heard in this man's words to me. We need to become people and communities who pray this way and who think this way. And then, of course, who live this way. Amen?